According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, join me, if you would, in the Gospel of John, chapter 21. The Gospel of John, chapter 21. The addendum chapter. The epilogue chapter. As the Apostle John wrote two conclusions to his book. The conclusion at the end of chapter 20, which I think is uh, a, a beautiful way to end an epistle, a beautiful way to end the gospel, and he does so at the end of chapter 20, reading uh, verses 30 and 31 of that chapter, says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And uh, my thought is, is this is where the gospel originally ended, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And uh, the, gospel, the complete gospel was, uh, was ready to be copied and distributed and sent forth and all the rest. Maybe it even was. We don't know. Then at some point in later years, uh, an additional chapter was added. What we have as chapter 21, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again. And um, in the process of this chapter, we have the material we're dealing with, the fishing and the, the no results and then the great results and then the do you love me more than these and uh, so forth. And then the conclusion of this chapter is like a re-conclusion to the book. Verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so we have, uh, really, it's a restatement of the conclusion of chapter 20. It's expanded a bit and uh, wraps up not only chapter 21, but serves as a second conclusion to the gospel itself so here's where we are we got a good jump on it i think last week we're ready now to get a second shot at it before we do though let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the father to bless our study shall we pray heavenly father we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together the great blessing that it is to have this midweek service, this morning service here, and we thank you for the Life of Christ series. And uh, as we approach the conclusion of this series, Father, we just uh, thank you for all that you have provided and all that you continue to provide. Now for this hour, Father, we ask once again that you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're talking about... Where did we leave off last week? D. 2D? All right. Well, we'll just take it from the top. Like a musician, right? Once again, take it from the top. This chapter is unique to John, describes a third particular manifestation of Jesus to seven disciples. Remember, the Gospel of John is unique. It is unlike the other three. The other three are called synoptic Gospels because they have so much that they have in common. And uh, they relate much of the same material, much of the same story. Uh, the Gospel of John was written in later years, and the Gospel of John is roughly 80% unique uh, to itself. 
All right. And so this chapter is unique. The synoptics will not record the, the morning fish breakfast that Jesus serves these guys. Uh, the other Gospels do not record the do you love me more than these message. Uh, they record the denials of Peter. They do, not confirm, they do not record the affirmations of Peter the way that the Gospel of John does. Uh, they also don't record the legend that John would never die that had started to spring up. And uh, John has to put that legend to, uh, to bed. He's got to end that rumor and uh, indicate that uh, the story is, is being spread, but it's not an accurate story. All right, that's actually a misunderstanding of, uh, of what Jesus actually did say. And so he uses this epilogue to clear that up. And it may even be that that growing rumor is what motivated him to, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to attach an, a, a, an appendix or a, uh, uh, an epilogue chapter to his completed gospel. So this chapter is unique to John and describes a third particular manifestation. Verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And because of the two times that we have presented in chapter 20, we have a sequence here that we can connect with the record in the synoptic gospels. All right, Because the synoptics speak about uh, a, uh, an appearance that John doesn't talk about. He ta- uh, the synoptics give the Great Commission, for example. The synoptics talk about an appearance on the mountain when he's in the, uh, on the mountain uh, in Galilee. He had told the women to go tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And he appears to them on a mountain. And he uh, gives them the Great Commission at that time. He appears before 500 at one time. I believe, on that mountain. Okay? We'll connect that when we get to that, to that episode. But that episode hasn't happened yet. That episode does not happen in between the second and the third time because this is the third time right here. All right? If that mountain episode had taken place, if the Great Commission uh, episode had taken place prior, then this would be the fourth, right? not the third. And we're told that this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples. The term manifested, I haven't really spent a lot of time on it. I didn't put any notes together, but it's interesting. Phanerao, it's used twice in verse 1. It's used there in verse 14. It's the recognition that he is is appearing, he is shining, he is being seen, not just for showing off purposes like, ha, look at me, but he's specifically challenging these men, challenging them to achieve what it is that he's sending them to do. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. All right. Do you love me more than these? Challenges each time that he appears before them. He's challenging them. uh, Looking forward to what they're going to have to achieve after he departs. So we have Simon Peter and six others that join him. A total of seven. And we don't know the names of two of them. We do know that uh, there were six others that joined him, including four among the twelve. And... uh, Highlighting, of course, that Nathaniel to the synoptics is known as Bartholomew. Same guy, different names. Nathaniel Bartholomew. Secondly, the authorship of this chapter has been debated. We talked about that last week. The fact that we have language here that might indicate uh, a co-author, or not a co-author, but a scribe or a amanuensis. Hard to pronounce. It's a Latin term. Amanuensis is the uh, scribe that takes the dictation and records the... Uh, the text um, in verse 24 this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true all right and so a lot of discussion goes into that verse is that 
the Apostle John? Is that the same as the author of the first 20 chapters? Is it different? Is this a, a little editorial note that a scribe put in there to indicate that he is the one who has attached the epilogue to the Gospel of John? Well, a lot of, a lot of folks take it that way. I, I don't think it's necessary to take it that way. I think that John himself wrote that prescript. And... Um, that uh, we have it there. Likewise, I think if you look back to chapter 19 when he's on the cross and the, and the uh, centurion stabs him here with a spear or the soldier, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Verse 35, He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. That's another verse that gives a snippet. It's, it's, the, it's the voice of the author. It's the voice of the person who is putting quill to parchment, all right? And it, it, it rarely comes out in the text, but when it does, it's a valuable clue for us. It's a clue for who put quill to parchment, who's the, who's the author of this text. All right, gave you the examples there of Tertius being the scribe for the book of Romans, and that doesn't violate... Um, the fact that Paul is the writer of Romans. Likewise here, if, if the scribe in John 21, 24 is not the Apostle John, it does not damage the, the Johannine authorship of the Gospel. It, it's still the Gospel of John. Even if a John disciple uh, attached chapter 21 to the other 20 chapters. I don't personally believe that, but even if that's the case, it does not affect the primary authorship of the Gospel of John. I believe, and I gave this to you under point C, the Gospel signature could also apply to the Apostle John. That's his style. He never refers to himself by name. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who was reclining on his breast, the disciple who had asked him, Lord, who is it that betrays you? Um, several times right here in this chapter, we still have the same cagey, uh, humble, uh, circumspect kind of way to refer to himself, right? You'll notice that here in verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. All right, that disciple whom Jesus loved. And so uh, there it is. And, and I think throughout this chapter, we find the indication that uh, John is... Um, is uh, referring to himself in the same way. Look at verse 20. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So still, there's that cagey way of not referring to himself by name. He's been doing it through the first 20 chapters. He's still doing it here in chapter 21. That's why I think that the signature in verse 24 it is a signature verse. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. We know that his testimony is true. That's, that's compatible with the first 20 chapters. I, I believe John wrote the entire gospel, including the, the epilogue chapter. Uh, even if there was a period of time, and sure, there may have been a period of time when his gospel was done and then the Holy Spirit provoked him to add an extra chapter. Okay, That's my uh, thought anyway. So, uh, the signature could apply to the Apostle John and the style of writing he employed to keep his own name out of his own narrative. And I think that's the case. Now, unlike the ending of Mark, the ending of John has no manuscript controversy. If, in fact, if in fact um, the 20-chapter edition was finished and copied and distributed and sent around, 
uh, if that happened, it, it couldn't happen very long, and um, none of those manuscripts exist today. None of those manuscripts were ever circulated uh, and, and continue to this day. Every manuscript we have that contains the Gospel of John has the 21st chapter. All right, it has the 21st chapter. The only, the only um, d- uh, manuscript discrepancy is uh, sometimes after the 21st chapter, you have the, uh, the, the, the adulterous woman paragraph tacked on to the, to the end of it. Okay? That's the, the manuscript question in the Gospel of John is whether or not that uh, you're familiar with the, the pericope de adultera, the adulterous woman in John 8. Yeah, that paragraph, 753 through 812, that paragraph sometimes, in a lot of cases, is attached on to the end of, of the gospel. But uh, this chapter is never left out. This chapter is never missing. It's never, never uh, a controversy. Okay. As it happened before, point three, as it happened before, these professionals failed at their secular work. And this is where we want to pick up because we did not spend the time to look through chapter five, Luke five, and compare Luke five to John 21. So we can do that at this time. As it happened before, these professionals failed at their secular work. You know, there's nothing that hurts a man more. There's nothing that just gets them, particularly when they're skilled at what they do. These are accomplished men, experienced men. Um, these aren't just amateur fishermen, all right? They have a partnership with multiple boats in a fishing fleet. Zebedee, his sons, Peter and Andrew, and servants were told, all right? I think it's doulos in that passage. They have servants that, uh, that are involved in this fishing fleet, okay? They have partners in this fishing fleet, so you have professional fishermen and they fail at their secular works. Let's look back at Luke 5 and remind ourselves of some of these details. This is much earlier. This is obviously almost to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, he has called some initial disciples, uh, many of these same guys that uh, he had early in his Judean ministry, uh, after the baptism of the River Jordan, he had a kind of a co-ministry with John the Baptist in the Judea region. And uh, he, his disciples were baptizing. John the Baptist was still baptizing, all of which until John the Baptist was arrested. And then uh, Jesus uh, retreated and, and relocated to Galilee. And at that time, it appears that many of the early disciples, which was Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, Uh, those early disciples evidently returned back to their secular work. And so he comes along and he starts to call them now to be fishers of men, to go full time, which is what happens here. In Luke 5.10, you'll notice, do not fear from now on, you will be catching men. And when uh, when they had brought their boats, plural, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So from this verse on, the disciples are full-time disciples. They're no longer engaged in their fishing business from this point on, okay? As you track it in the, uh, in the uh, Galilean ministry. Now, leading up to this. Um, let's see. Well, start of the chapter. While the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias in John 21, 
And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. So he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. It gives him a little bit of space, all right, because they were crowding around him and pressing around him. And uh, that was a problem, okay? So now he's got space. Now he's in the little boat. Now he's, who knows, 10 feet from land, whatever. He's got opportunity now to not be pressed about, and they can gather around on the shore, and he can address them. All right, and then when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. All right, now, some scholars think this is the same episode, the same event, the same story as what we see in John 21. And they do so, they think that they're the same because of, you know, a few similarities. Um, And I think because of their flawed understanding of what the Bible is. They've got a preconceived notion of what the Bible is. And um, so they think, well, this story in Luke 5 and the other story in John 21, they must both have the same source, the same origin, the same legend, okay? And as I said, it comes from a flawed understanding of what the Bible is. The liberals think that the Bible is not God's written word. The the liberals think that the Bible is just a collection of legends and stories and oral traditions that were gathered over time and that eventually came to be found in written form. And so with that as a preconceived idea, with that as an assumption of what the Bible is, they look at this story and they look at John 21 and they say, see, that's what we're telling you about. We've got uh, a twisted story that has found its way into two different written forms based upon a confusion of, of, of an oral legend. And it's just circular reasoning. See, they're, using, they're, they're, they're proving their case by reasserting their assumptions. I think it's more natural to think that um, Jesus was teaching on the beach and they were crowding around him and he got into the boat and this, this event actually happened and that it was written by the Holy Spirit to describe an event that actually happened. And it's different than what happened after his resurrection. All right. Entirely different. He wasn't teaching a Bible class. There weren't crowds pressing around him. There weren't fishermen washing their nets. He didn't get into a boat to make some space between him and his audience. None of that happened in John 21. He's walking along the beach, and they're the ones out there in the boats, struggling, uh, you know, disappointed they don't have a catch. Too many differences to uh, to equate the, the episodes. I think it's ridiculous. All right. So, also... When he says, uh, let down your nets, uh, in John 21, there was no argument. In John 21, they just did what they were told. He said, put down your nets on the, on the you know, and I don't want to misread this or misquote this. Um, he says, children, Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered, no. And he said, cast the net on the right hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast. He doesn't say, Master, we were fishing all night. We didn't catch anything, but okay, if you say so, because it's you, we'll do it. None of that happens here in John 21. He says, cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat, you will find a catch. So they cast. All right? So if you ever want to debate the left-right thing with people, politically speaking, right-hand side, it's productive. All right. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. All right. 
If they were leftists, they would just demand that somebody else with fish would share with them. Okay, I'm in trouble. (coughs) Back to to Luke 5, though. Back to Luke 5, see. Put out into the deep water. It doesn't say anything about left, right. It just says put out into the deep water. We're just we're here, you know, ten feet from shore. It's not that deep. We're not going to fish right here by the by the beach. Let's let's go out there and get some fish. <clears throat> and the grumbling master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. But okay, all right. We normally fish at night. You get better uh, results at night. Sun's already up, but okay, we'll go we'll go fishing. All right, and so when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. Nets didn't break in John 21. They didn't even start to break in John 21. Here they're starting to break. So they signaled to their partners. This is a business conglomerate. This is a fishing fleet in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Was there any sinking that took place in John 21? Not at all. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That didn't happen in John 21. Uh, John said, Hey, it's the Lord, and Peter throws himself in the water. All right. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. There's partners again. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is early in the Galilean ministry. This is where they go full-time as disciples. John 21 is after the resurrection, shortly before the Great Commission, shortly before the launching of the church age. Entirely different. Entirely different. But we do have similarities. As it happened before, these professionals failed at their secular work. Okay? failed at their secular work now what's the illustration here what is god using what is he illustrating what is he exemplifying why would god use a secular failure you know secular failure can get a man's attention can be a reminder that uh and i'm not blaming peter when simon peter said i'm going fishing in verse three i think commentaries read a lot into that They read it as if Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing, meaning I'm going to stop being an apostle and I'm going to resume my fishing career. That's far beyond what the text actually says. The text says I'm going fishing. Okay? And we don't know, in the meantime, and it's been three years, does he even have boats anymore? Has he sold his business? Um, You know, what, what, what condition are the boats in if they haven't been maintained in the last three years? What condition have the nets been in? Kind of a thing. I, I suspect that uh, most of those assets were sold off or leased out or something. Anyway, um, he says, I'm going fishing, and he's got a boat available, maybe two. And uh, they've got nets, and uh, they, they have a night of fishing. To me, it's like, you know, let's, do, let's have a night doing what we used to do. Okay, sounds fun. So I don't... I don't blame Peter for a night of fishing. However, a night of fishing could spark some thinking, right? A night of fishing could 
uh, bring back some memories, could spark some regrets, could cause a, a fella, if he was successful, to start thinking, you know what, I miss this. I miss this stuff. I could go back to this. I could see myself going back to this. All right? And so God doesn't let that happen. <laughs> he gives no success at all on this night. Nothing at all on this night. In fact, we see frustration on this night. He was stripped for work. They had done nothing. Um, they're hauling in these nets. There was no, um, there was no achievement. There was no joy in uh, in this until he gives them the miracle. And in perhaps that's something the Lord does to, uh, um, I don't know, keep a guy from getting ideas, right? To keep a guy who has put his hand to the plow to keep him from looking back. And we do have an admonishment there in the sense that. Uh, that's Luke 9.62. I think it's Luke 9.62. I used this in Kiev at the graduation ceremony. Yes. These are the, oh, first, first, first. I I would follow you, but excuses here. I'm going to go bury my father first. You know, he's not dead yet, and he's not even in poor health. He'll die, you know, years from now. But, you know, after he's dead, then uh, I'd be willing to be a disciple. Another said, first I've got to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right, there's a principle at work there. You put your hand to the plow. You're called as an apostle. You've received the, the uh, upper room discourse and you're suited now to, you know, just in a few days to receive the Holy Spirit and launch into a, an apostolic ministry at the beginning of the church age. You're not going to go back to being a fisherman. There will be no joy on this night. In fact, there will be some rebuke the next morning. Is what we'll see with the, do you love me more than these messages. All right. On the previous occasion, the experts grumbled before following Jesus' instructions. On this occasion, obedience is given immediately. And I find that's quite a difference. There's others too, other contrasts as well that we saw. In, uh, in the previous occasion, Jesus got into the boat. He was the first one in the boat. And then said, hey, get in with me, let's go fishing. On this occasion, he never does get in the boat. They're in the boat. He's walking along the beach asking if uh, he can get some breakfast from them. So there's, there's other contrasts. I think the contrasts are too uh, stark to try to equate these. Plus, the timing is just horrible. The first episode is at the beginning of their ministry, and this episode is after his resurrection. You have to totally be committed to your uh, legendary hypotheses in order to uh, blend these two events. All right. So now, point four, what happens next? Jesus initiates the first men's breakfast tradition. Here's the first men's breakfast. Okay, people are always asking, when are we going to have a men's breakfast? You know, when, can we have a men's breakfast? Which we had, I think, what well, we had two when John Miller was here with us, maybe three, not not that many. Saturday morning men's prayer breakfasts. All right, it's interesting because he had asked them for breakfast or for fish, and he has his own. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's take a look. It's been a week since we've read this. Simon Peter uh, and Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel, 
the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples, were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And so they said to him, well, we'll come with you. And they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. And uh, there's even different terms for boat throughout this paragraph. And it's not clear whether John uses two different words or whether there's two different boats, a larger fishing ship and then a smaller boat, perhaps. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach and the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So he said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered, no. So walking along, and this is fairly common, the, the fishermen coming in with a haul from the night before and, and their, their goods are going to be for sale. There's going to be customers there waiting to purchase. And uh, calls them children. We don't know how old he appeared in this vision but, or in this uh, appearance, manifestation. So cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast, no argument, no question. They did what they were told. And they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Don't know what he looked like. Don't know why he was disguised. You know, did he look like the gardener again? Or did he look like the, the, the face that he was wearing when he uh, was walking along with the Emmaus Road disciples? Okay. Evidently, whether this is a feature of the resurrection body or whether this is just his divine power at work, but he disguised himself in these different appearances. Okay. I suspect it was not uh, a, uh, an ability of the resurrection body. Why would it be? I don't know. Um, I suspect that uh, this was, these were just uh, divine acts that he did to disguise himself. So uh, when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he'd been stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. That's a bit different than the Luke chapter 5 episode that we just read a few minutes ago. But the other disciples came in the little boat. That's the different word. For they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. See, Jesus already had breakfast. He already, I mean, he had the stuff for breakfast ready to go. He had the fish. He had the bread. He had the charcoal. He had the fire. Where did he get all that stuff? Okay, where did he get all that stuff? He was asking them for fish. They didn't have any, but he did. He didn't need them. He's got this breakfast ready to go. All right, kind of a fun word for breakfast here and different things. Um, so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. So he's already cooking the food. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. You can, you can add to what I've already got going here. And uh, interestingly enough, well, I'm, maybe I'm reading into that too. Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Now, is that necessary for the breakfast? He already has the food for their breakfast. So what's he going to do with the fish they're bringing him? Doesn't say. All right, so Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of large fish, 153. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. And so Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. So uh, he doesn't need their fish. None of the 153 are necessary. He has sufficient fish and bread ready to go for their breakfast. So come and have breakfast. And another disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? All right. They're not going to ask, who are you? They're not going to ask, why, why do you look that way? Why are you wearing that disguise? Okay. 
So Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them, and the fish likewise. You can imagine, just like he did with the, the Emmaus Road guys. He broke bread, he's taking the bread, he's distributing it, just like he did with the, the feeding of the 5,000. Takes the loaves, he takes the fish. He doesn't need what they brought to him. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifest to the disciples. All right, so here's the first men's breakfast tradition. Jesus has fish and bread already cooking before the disciples arrive with their catch. I find that extraordinary. John chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. Jesus has fish and bread already cooking before the disciples arrive with their catch. I look at this, I see a pattern for the church age. I see principles. That if I'm going to... uh, (laughs) If I'm going to be victorious in the Christian way of life, I need to be on board with his plan and program instead of what I'm going to do in my human effort. You know, instead of coming up with my own plan, my own design, because he's going to be three steps ahead of me already. You know, I'm going to be, I'm struggling in some boat somewhere trying to find fish. And I find by the time I get to the beach, he's already got the fish. They're already cooking with the bread already on the fire. He's way ahead of me. He's way ahead of me. They were already cooking before the disciples arrived with their catch because he knows the alpha from the omega. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows not only what needs to happen, but when it needs to happen and how and why and all the, all the details already lined up. The fish and loaf, loaves, or the fish and loaf, singular. Fish and loaf, singular. Look at your nouns. Read your Greek New Testament. It's hard in English, right? Because fish is fish. <laughs> okay and i say fish am i talking about a single little nemo kind of fish or am i talking uh, a great big school of fish in english it's the same word fish is fish but um i guess we could use fishes make a plural out of it you know when that yeah in elizabethan english had fishes sometimes anyway um one fish one loaf she's going to multiply and feed all these guys sufficient to feed everybody but Jesus ordered the disciples to bring what they caught. Now, is that contradictory or is it, I think it's a pattern as well. All of this is a pattern. And the fish and loaf was sufficient to feed everybody. But Jesus ordered the disciples to bring what they caught. Both are true. Okay, both and, right? Both are true. Jesus is providing for us. And what we bring isn't for us. What we bring is for Him. Okay? What we need, He provides. What we bring belongs to Him. It's a pattern for the church age. And we don't need to hold some of it back. Say, okay, we caught 153. Uh, We'll need about 40 for ourselves and we'll give uh, 113 to the Lord. Okay? Or we need 30. We'll give, we need 40. You know, the difference, God gets the leftovers. Because we take off the top what we think we need. And then God gets the leftovers. Wait a minute. What we bring is His. The 153 big, fat, juicy, well, not fat, juicy. It says big. Um, what does it say? Big. Okay. Yeah, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 
153, okay. Yeah, you could look at those and say, wow, I want the big ones. Those little ones on the fire over there, you know, I want the big ones. No, they belong to the Lord. He's the one that said, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Is his harvest, not mine. What do I need for my feeding? What do I need for my sustenance? He'll provide it. He'll provide it. It comes from him. So, this is the principle. When you look at these two realities, verses 9 through 13, Jesus has food to feed everybody. Because you'll note, um, 9 through 13 there, Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Everything we need comes from the Lord. (laughs) That's the principle here. Everything we need comes from the Lord. Even when He appears in an unfamiliar form. Why does He do that? I think it's brilliant of Him to do that. He still does it today. He does it all the time. Once you start looking for it, you start seeing the Lord in lots of places. You see His hand in a lot of things. Everything we need comes from the Lord, even when He appears in an unfamiliar form. We nevertheless know that He is our provider. He is our provider. And sometimes it's a form we don't recognize. Sometimes we don't even see it. It's an anonymous donation. Or it's a form we weren't expecting. It's an, it's an opportunity to, uh, um, to conduct our Christian walk as unto the Lord. Now you see, you're, you're, um, you have an occasion where... Uh, I don't know, you're a homeless guy on the street and, and you're in discussion with him and you, you give him a meal. Um, is that the Lord? <laughs> okay. It might not even be a human being. It could be an angel sent to test your hospitality. But in the circumstance, in the circumstance, the Lord is in a lot of circumstances and He may appear in forms that we don't recognize. Okay, I'm talking metaphorically here. Not, I'm not talking about literal... Uh, Christophanes. Okay? Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is not literally walking this earth. He won't literally walk this earth till second advent. The closest he'll get will be the trumpet when we meet him in the air. But in metaphor, in circumstances, in um, work assignments, we've got an assignment right now in the Philippines with uh, provision to, to help and different relief efforts and things there. Okay? The Lord's going to provide for those brothers and sisters in the Philippines. And He may provide in means that they don't expect. And, and we may be a part of that provision, but it comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. And that's the principle that we see here. Notice now, everything we catch belongs to Him. Everything that we, and I put we in quotes, because are we really the ones doing it, right? But everything we catch belongs to the Lord. Everything we catch belongs to the Lord. Everything we can claim belongs to the Lord. Because if we boast, we've got to boast in the Lord. Okay? Whatever we catch, whatever we achieve, whatever fruit we bear belongs to the Lord. So, uh, you know, we're, we teach a Sunday school, we lead a child to the Christ or, or whatever. That's not our achievement because God was working in and through us to willing to do of His good pleasure. 
the grace of God even opened the opportunity to teach that class. The, um, I mean, it's all him. How could I boast in anything that I have seen or done? Right? It's an old cathedral gospel song that I like called Sinner Saved by Grace. All right. Everything we catch belongs to the Lord. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, 204 Bible classes taught in in a particular year. Well, God did that. We can't boast in that. We're going to boast in the Lord, though. And we're going to boast in the Lord appropriately. Note the size and get an accurate count. Why is that significant? That there's 153. Not 152. Not 154. It's not an estimate. It's not a round number. You're not looking at that sin. Mm, that's a bunch of fish. Okay, that's a, that's a that's a boatload. Okay, counting precisely 153, an exact count, an exact count, and the size. These are not small fish. These are large fish. Why that detail? Because it is. The detail is in the text. The detail is provided here in this narrative, and. I think we ought to pay attention to what God's doing. We ought to have our eyes open to what God provides. We ought to give the fitting testimony to what God supplies. See, and I need to do a better job of this. You know, the miracle that arrived last year. And do we just round it off and and throw a big round number off? Or do we give the precise amount? $597,524.17. All right. We're we're noting exactly 153 fish, large fish. We have a precise testimony to what he has supplied. And we're not content to just ballpark it, right? Like when Jesus misses one sheep and he's still got 99 left over. Well, that's good enough, isn't it? (laughs) We got most of them. No, he's missing one. And he's going to go get it. So everything we catch belongs to the Lord. Note the size and get an accurate count. Give him the, uh, the, the glory. Give him the credit. Give him the testimony. And I think the failure to do that is a problem. Because a failure to identify the work that God is doing means that over time we'll grow complacent and over time we'll start getting forgetful and, and down the road we'll, we'll actually act like God's never done anything for us. You know? Because we're not appreciative each time that He does. We don't identify each time that He does. Each occasion is an occasion to give Him the glory. All right. Which leads us next to Peter's private prompt. (laughs) Peter's private prompt. What does he teach during breakfast? What do they talk about during breakfast? You know, if you ever... <laughs> it's, I can't imagine being with the Lord and yet He's not looking like Himself and so you don't ask Him who He is or even act like you know Him, but you do know Him. I can't imagine. The only awkwardness... It's happened once. Um... 
because of my former line of work and, and sometimes I meet people in town and I know them and I know where I know them from, but it's a little bit embarrassing because they used to be in jail. They used to be an inmate. And so it's kind of a dangerous question. You know, have we met? You know, um, and I try to, you know, be a little uh, cautious, a little careful, diplomatic, you know, uh, we're involved in a Boy Scout troop, a baseball team, a swim team, you know, church. I try to find other venues where maybe we know each other. And then when finally it hits me, oh, I, this is a former inmate. I know who this is. Okay. Well, they may not want to talk about that. <laughs> They may not, that may have been a time of their life they don't want to think about or talk about or admit or whatever. So, okay, I won't go there. I'll act like this is the first time we've ever met. This is great. Pleased to meet you. Welcome to Austin Bible Church. Okay. And we'll just, uh, we'll just go with it. And I think that's happened. You know, the disciples, they didn't want to ask, who are you, Lord, knowing that it was the Lord. And so when they had finished breakfast... Now is when the teaching is going to start. And Jesus is going to say to Simon Peter, when they finish breakfast. Now, what do they talk about during breakfast? That's what I want to know. Just because I'm nosy. <laughs> okay. I want to know. What do they talk about? What do you talk about when you're with Jesus and you can't act like you know him? Or you can't, you know, what do you talk about? No, the Bible doesn't say. The text doesn't say. It's not recorded. I guess it doesn't matter. Okay, whatever they were talking about, maybe they were talking about sports or the weather or something secular. All right, then when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you realize how many interpretations of that verse there are? (laughs) You read a hundred commentaries, you're going to get, oh, I don't know, several Several different interpretations, okay? Probably three dominant ones and then scads more. Do you love me more than these? What was he talking about? Was he talking about the fish? Was he talking about the disciples? Was he talking about... The problem with these is it's, it's genitive plural. And so we have no clue. It's just two-tone, okay? Is it these feminine, these masculine, these neuter? We don't know because two-tone is... The same Greek word for masculine genitive plural, feminine genitive plural, neuter genitive plural. Do you love me more than these? And then we also don't know whether it's, uh, uh, you know, he's speaking here objectively or subjectively. In other words, all right, so here's, here's the main themes. And I'll give you these to think about and we'll see how far we get and the rest we'll have to pick up next week. Um, do you love me more than these fish? Okay, do you love me more than these fish? In other words, do you love being an apostle more than being a fisherman? Do you uh, do you love sp- your spiritual uh, pursuit, your your spiritual vocation, or do you want to go back to secular work again? Okay, do you love me more than these? And so it'd be a question that would challenge a, a man in uh, or a believer, a woman in a believer in spiritual uh, endeavors. Okay. And so if God's got a call on you to be a pastor or an evangelist, a missionary or what have you, and then um, the crisis moment hits and you've got to ask yourself, what do I love more? What do I love more? Do I love the Lord more or do I love fishing? Okay, for a fisherman. 
baseball for a baseball player. Well, what have you, okay? Uh, Billy Sunday walked away from a $16,000 a year baseball contract with the Chicago White Stockings, all right? And um, back in the day and age in which he, 1911, 19, I forget the year, but $16,000 was a lot of money back then. Huge. Probably the fastest man, well, definitely the fastest man of his generation and possibly the fastest baseball player ever in the history of baseball. And he walked away from it. Became an evangelist. And became the, um, the, the number one evangelist of his, of his generation. So, um, in fact, when Billy Graham started to get famous, they said, it's another Billy Sunday, is what they said. They both named Billy. But anyway, um, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And that's with the idea that these are the fish that he's talking about. Or do you love me more than these um, disciples? Okay. Do you love me more than these? Peter, and, or I mean James and John and Philip and Nathaniel and, and you know, whoever these other six disciples are. Do you love me more than these? I think that's what he was talking about. I believe that's exactly what he was talking about. I'll show you why. The um, reason why is because of the setting for this. Notice, the charcoal fire was the setting. The charcoal fire was the setting for Peter's three denials, and now it's the setting for Peter's three affirmations. Okay? Now I just gave it away. There's a whole sermon right here in that one point. Have <laughs> you ever think about this? The word charcoal is it's, it's unusual. It's only used in these two places. Okay? It's only used here. It's, it's anthrax, right? I think where we get. Anyway, there's different terms uh, for carbon, for uh, charcoal. But back in chapter 18 it was used. And in that event, what was happening? In that event, what was happening was uh, the Lord said that uh, you're going to abandon me. The Lord said you're going to abandon me. And Peter said, not me. Not me. In fact, he even got a little boastful and said, everybody else will abandon you. These other disciples will abandon you, but I won't abandon you. Okay? And this is, uh, this is it. All right, when you back up to chapter 13 and you see this, and Peter's like, they're all going to abandon you. I won't abandon you. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. I'm reading from John 13. I probably need to go to Matthew, actually, to find the, the boastful denial where he says, even though these will deny you, I will never deny you. And the Lord said, truly, I say to you, the, the rooster will crow three times. Okay. In other words, at the moment where, where Peter is denying the Lord, he was not just denying the Lord in the face of unbelievers. He was actually boastful of his own love superior to the other disciples and their love. 
That's the point. That's the point. So, um, and that's where it is. Okay, so it's it's Matthew twenty six thirty five. Thank you, Lord. That's what I was looking for. Matthew twenty six. Verse 33, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You see that? I'm better than those guys. <laughs> They're going to fall away. Not me. Not me. I love you more than Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and all these guys. See, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. All of you. And Peter's like, not me, not me, you're wrong, I'll show you're wrong. And this is so pathetic, but we, we all do this, don't we? Or from time to time, occasionally. Okay, I'll just speak for myself. You know, you, you, you have an understanding and then you think, well, wait a minute, I know better than God does. No, God knows what he's talking about. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Zechariah 13 has got to get fulfilled. And Peter says, no, I disagree. He says, Jesus, you're wrong. And that scripture is wrong. (laughs) That scripture doesn't have to be fulfilled. Quit talking like that. I'm not going to fall away from you. But after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. That's why they were in Galilee. The women told him that he was going to meet him in Galilee. I'm wondering sometimes if they just got tired of waiting. And Peter said, well, he'll show up sometime. He can find us then. We're, let's, let's go fishing. <laughs> right? We're in Galilee. He's not showing up. I'm going fishing. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing to you. And so I think that this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Is looking back to that Thursday night. Okay. We don't know what kind of time frame has passed here. This is sometime after that Sunday. Sometime after they've had time to travel to Galilee and sometime before Pentecost, before the Ascension. Do you love me more than these? Peter, do you still have that pride? <laughs> you still have that hang-up? You still have that sense that uh, you're, the, you're the, the top dog and you're better than all these other guys? Hmm. And it's interesting, when he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he doesn't say, uh, I love you. He doesn't say, I love you more than these, and the, or they don't love you. He doesn't say, I love you and I'll never fall away. He doesn't take it to the, to the prideful vow that he had the night in which Jesus was betrayed. It's just a simple, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Now we'll talk about the change from agape to phileo. And, because he does say, uh, Simon, son of John, do you agapao me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And that's significant. We'll have to take the time to break that down next next Wednesday. So he said to him, Tend my lambs. You show your love for God by obeying his commandments. 
by pursuing the work that He's given for you to do, by abiding in Him, by bearing the fruit. This is how you love Him. All right? Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you, or Jonah, depending on which Greek manuscript you want to follow, Simon, son of John, do you agapa? I mean, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I follow you. So he said to him, shepherd my sheep. Shepherd is a different word from tend, and sheep is a different word from lambs. He then said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Now Jesus changes the word. Now Jesus switches the third time to the word that Peter has used twice already. Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? It's a question he's answered twice with phileo. Now on the third time, he's going to answer phileo. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You oida, all things. You gnosko that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Tend was the first word, and sheep was that second word that was used. We have tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and then tend my sheep. All right, so this is what we're going to have. Three denials. Jesus wasn't going to let it go until he got the third affirmation. Okay? Three denials, three affirmations. And, uh, all right, even Stephen. <laughs> okay? Fair and square. Three denials, three affirmations. Let's forget what lies behind and shepherd my flock, feed my sheep. Okay? So, we'll pick up with this next week and uh, we'll talk about the different vocabulary terms, agapao versus phileo, oida versus gnosko, bosco versus poimano, arnion versus probaton. Take a look at each of those. Um, we'll talk about the shepherding emphasis that's in play here and uh, the place that Peter has in the chain of shepherding passages throughout Scripture. I think it's significant. And then uh, the prophecy about the martyrdom. It's, it's neat the way that... Um, when when Peter was in the denial mode, Jesus gave him the prophecy of the of the rooster. Uh, now that Peter is in the confession mode or the affirmation mode, uh, Jesus gives him the prophecy of the uh, old man being led along. When you uh, grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Peter gets a prophecy in both episodes. All right, and um, so we'll talk about this contrast there as well. Okay. Any questions? Nope. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. Father, we look forward to what you have for us as we return. If you delay long enough to give us next week, uh, we look forward to uh, coming back again and, and uh, learning like Peter about the, uh, the expectations of agapao and phileo love. Father, we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.